playlist calls the day after Soulful and Profound. The Cannes and New York Film Festival hit opens May 11th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Hello, Violet Luca, Film Comment Digital Producer here. Just a quick reminder that we'll be having daily podcasts from Cannes starting tomorrow. Like Sundance, these episodes will be a little shorter and materialize at noon Eastern Standard Time every day, including on the weekends. So be sure to tune in tomorrow or adjust your podcast syndication settings to hear what Nicholas Rapold and Amy Taubin have to say about the Cannes opening night film. Now, listen to what will be our only non-Cannes episode for a while, a look at the career of the singular Geraldine Chaplin. Geraldine Chaplin, A Life, narrated by Andrea R. Vaucher. I met Geraldine Chaplin in 2013 at the Panama International Film Festival, where she was being honored for her contribution to Spanish cinema. What struck me about her, other than her piercing bright eyes with the distinctive beauty marks below, was how open and good-natured she was with everybody, filmmakers, journalists, the public. Wherever Geraldine Chaplin happened to be became the center of a circle of laughter and conversations in several languages, often simultaneously. She was back at the Panama Festival again in April, accompanied by her husband, Chilean director and cinematographer Patricio Pato Castilla. She introduced her latest film, her 155th, Spanish director Carlos Marquez Marcet's Tierra Ferme, Anchor and Hope in English, which stars her daughter, Una Chaplin. As an afternoon rain pelted the roof of the Central Hotel in Casco Viejo, the old colonial section of Panama City, David Bloom and I had the opportunity to sit down with Charlie Chaplin's daughter and look back upon her life and career. Geraldine Chaplin made her film debut at eight years old. She and her siblings had a cameo in Limelight, directed by and starring her father. When the film was finished, the Chaplin family went off to Europe to promote the film. So we got the famous telegram on the boat. Oh, on the boat going there? On the boat, on the Queen Elizabeth. He got the telegram saying you will, you will have to pass in front of the, uh, I don't know what committee if you want to come back. House on American Activities Committee, perhaps? Yes. How did you, what did your father tell you? I mean, you had all your friends in Beverly Nothing. Nothing. I mean, they were such extraordinary parents that, in fact, we knew nothing about it. We were just, we went uh, traveling around in England, and then we were traveling around in Switzerland, and he was actually looking for a place. My mother finally was pregnant with Eugene, and we were living in a hotel, and she said, I'm not having this baby in a hotel. So he bought a house in Switzerland, sight unseen. But uh, he never told us anything, and we never knew that he'd been kicked out. I found out that he'd been kicked out of the United States when I must have been about 15. By then, I was a fervent Marxist, and so it was, yay, dad, my father, yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
After a while, was it incredibly wrenching to be away from your friends and everything that you knew? I think it was probably wrenching at the beginning. Although I always remember telling my, my friends that I went to a school called Bonner School, I think. I would tell my friends we're going to England. And I always thought England was I mean, that far away. It must be a place with trees and monkeys. And, and it wasn't. It was just ordinary people dressed as ordinary people and... But I guess it was a very peripatetic family. You would travel around a lot, so it wasn't... No, we never traveled. I think that was the first time we traveled. I used to go to my my friend Juliet Coleman, the daughter of Ronald Coleman's San Ysidro Ranch. I mean, that, I think, was the most I'd ever traveled. So it was just, it was exciting. We were on a ship, and then suddenly we were in Switzerland, and suddenly we were in school, and suddenly... And I guess at that age you don't, or maybe kids do nowadays, we didn't really think about it. So when you were 15 and you found out what had happened, how did, how did that come about? Do you remember that conversation? I do all? remember the conversation because I remember going to my father and saying, Daddy, are you a Marxist? And he said, um, no. No. I mean, look at our house. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, to each according to his needs. I mean, I need this, yes. But uh, I won't fall into line and be against them. I asked her if she thought her father created such a sumptuous home for his children because his own childhood was so miserable at times. I think he liked that life a lot. I don't know if he did it for his children. <laughs> I think he liked it. Yes, himself. I remember his lawyer coming in, and he's, he's, my father's complaining about the bills, saying, "But this is no, this is I mean, this, what, what it socks for the kids." The lawyer saying, "Well, you know, if you insist on living like Louis XIV." And do you remember what made you declare that you were a Marxist at fifteen? Well, politics in general, yes, that was the thing to be. And I was very, I was very in agreement with all those ideas. We saw a lot of inequality, even in good old Switzerland. Uh-huh. <laughs> the so Italians were treated like shit. <laughs> Geraldine Chaplin's teenage years were devoted to studying ballet. I fell in love with ballet because I fell madly, insanely in love with my brother's wife, Noelle Adam. And I wanted to be her. I was, I think, 14. I wanted to be her. I wanted to have my hair like her. She was a wonderful dancer in Roland Petit's. She was a star dancer of Roland Petit's company. And she was in this ballet where I think Sidney met her called Le Rendez-vous Manqué. And the, the sets were Bernard Buffet. And she was on the cover of Life magazine. I mean, she had legs nine kilometers long. And she was very beautiful. And I wanted to be a dancer because I was in love with her. So I started very late. And I started with a very good teacher, Boris Knyazev, in Geneva, I think. So yeah, I wanted to be a dancer. But you did manage to go to Paris and to actually perform. Yes, I got into the Royal Ballet School which was incredible, under a different name. My father said, no, she has to go in under a different name. But I got in. I just probably the best time I ever danced in the audition, and then wasn't very good afterwards. I mean, my head, in my head, I danced beautifully. But if the body doesn't follow in ballet, it's difficult. <laughs> it's <laughs> difficult to do. And what was it that made your father say different name? 
He didn't want me to get into the Royal Ballet School just because I was Charlie Chaplin's daughter. And so I went on in under our secretary's name. I think it was Mademoiselle Burnett, I think. When her ballet career didn't pan out, Geraldine decided to try acting. Oh, it was so easy, because I'd worked for a while in a circus, because I worked in a, in a circus for a charity show, Le Gala de l'Union des Artistes, which was in Paris, and they got all, a bunch of artists, and they did circus numbers, and I did the elephants. So I rehearsed with the elephants for about three months, and then I did the elephants, and then the first place I asked for a job was with the elephants, and they said, yes, you can sleep with them, and you can clean them, but you can't go out in the in the, in the beast with them. Uh-huh. So I worked with the elephants for a bit. And, and circus life is very romantic as an idea, but it wasn't. And how was it cleaning up and sleeping with the elephants? Well, elephants like someone to sleep with them because it makes them, it's either a dog or a human being or a goat. They 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 just they sort of move around all night. They just sort of sway, and. Uh, it's, it's quite boring. When Geraldine Chaplin was 18 years old, director David Lean was on an airplane and saw her photo on the cover of a magazine. Jour de France, oh. which is like this really, I mean, awful, sort of, not the sort of magazine that David Lean would ever look at, but he probably, it was probably in the thing in front of him in the seat. I asked her why she happened to be on the cover of a magazine. I was a chouchou of Paris when Charlie Chaplin's daughter decides to make her ballet debut in Paris. And that was all very big publicity thing. And I uh, was the chouchou de tout Paris. And did you ask your father for any advice, some acting advice? Or? No, I, I, he just he had to sign the letter because David Lean wrote him a beautiful letter, which I still have, saying, talking about the screen test and how I was very good and he hoped I did the part. But he had to sign the contract. So although he was very much against any of his children going into acting, he did sign that contract. I just thought it was going to be fun. I'd already done one film, and it was just a lot of fun with Belmondo, and it was a lot of uh, farting around and playing jokes. And not... Which film did you do with Belmondo? I did a film called Par un beau matin d'été, and it was with um, Belmondo. Because I got an agent, and my, agent, my sister-in-law, who I was in love with, my sister-in-law's agent became my agent. I said, I want an agent. Okay, got an agent. Uh, and he said, your first film must be with Belmondo, who was the big superstar then. Uh-huh. Okay, my first film was with Belmondo. I mean, it was that easy. It was just so easy. I mean, being Charlie Chaplin's daughter was the easiest. It was so wonderful. Every door is open. Soon, Geraldine was on location in Spain, filming Dr. Zhivago, alongside stars such as Julie Christie and Omar Sharif. I asked her what her father thought of her first role in a major motion picture. I was always wanting constructive criticism from my father, and I never got it. And he saw Dr. Zhivago. He did see it. And I said to him, oh, well, what do you think? He said, well, you're the best thing in it. And that was his attitude about every other film that I ever did. No, no, you're the best thing in it. Either he thought I was awful, or he just, or maybe he was just a father drooling. And yet, you did an interview with the New York Times in 1977 where you said that your mother cut out all your reviews and your father read them over and over and over again. No, my mother used to cut out, I remember the, for the first film, the Belmondo film, my mother cut out the fact that the film was coming to Vevey. 
because he did, she didn't want my father to see it because she thought I was a bit of a phony and that I was very bad. And my father didn't see it. Then he did see Dr. Trivago, and you're the best thing in it, whatever. And from then on, it was the best, you're the best thing in it. I reminded her that in 1966, she was voted most promising newcomer by the Golden Globes for her role in Dr. Zhivago. Oh, was I? Yeah. My goodness. Well, newcomer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were a newcomer there. You were like 20 years old. The next year, 1967, Geraldine Chaplin appeared on Broadway in Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. The cast was phenomenal. I want you to get Simon from the stage to run home for me. He's to look in my desk, the left drawer. Oh, Eddie, what a good supper. Just as good as good can be. Anne Bancroft, George C. Scott, Austin Pendleton, Maggie Layton, and E.G. Marshall. Who would forget E.G. Marshall, yes. So we did that. I was supposed to do that at Lincoln Center. And at that time, Lincoln Center would only accept American actors. And I was not an American, I was British. And I had a British passport, so we'd been rehearsing everything, Mike Nichols, and and they said, um, we need your passport. And I gave my British passport. They said, no, an American passport. I said, well, I don't have one. So I was chucked back to Spain. And then when the play went on to Broadway, where we went to the Ethel Barrymore Theater, and then we went all around Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, I didn't know, we did a big tour. Then, then I was, then I was in. Mike Nichols was the director. Lillian Hellman was always in the watching. What was she like? She was. You, you'd know that you were not doing very good if she coughed. <laughs> you'd hear. <laughs> my mother used to tell a wonderful story about her when she was first married to my father, and she was about eighteen years old and. She would just get bored with his stories because she'd heard them again and again, and every time people would come around, he'd tell the same story. And she probably saw my mother, this teenage girl, being very bored, and she just went up to her and she said, your husband is an extraordinary man. My mother said she felt so embarrassed. Oh, but just nothing else that, because I was, I, you know, I'm working with Lillian Hellman. She, she put her in her place. Yes, yes. Wow. Don't, you know, don't. He's an extraordinary man. So with Anne Bancroft and, and all these actors, were you able to take things from them or pick things up from them or like, oh, I'll use that and... I was just involved in myself. And the critic, I had a really wonderful review from Clive Barnes, who worked then in the New York Times, and he said I was the best thing, more like my father. He said I was the best thing in the play. But what no one knows, I used to babysit for him because he was the ballet critic in, 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 in London. And I used to look after his kids for extra money. And so, and I was, oh, I'm in New York. I'm doing this play. So obviously he gave me this wonderful review. I'm sure you were really good. <laughs> then Geraldine Chaplin comes out at the top of the stairs. And I thought, oh, God, The next chapter of Geraldine Chaplin's career and life was spent with acclaimed Spanish director Carlos Saura. 
Sauer used his art to fight fascism and provoke Franco, who was still in power in Spain. I asked Geraldine how she met Saura. Because when I finished Dr. Zhivago, I said to the publicity man uh, who lived there, he was, he was married to a painter, and I'd like to stay in Spain if there's any young director that wants to work with me, you know, I'm up for whatever. And uh, he said, oh, yes, there's this young, rather talented young man, and he's doing a film. But Peppermint Frappe was my first film with Carter Saura. I don't know. No, we went to Cannes with Peppermint Frappe, which was the big Cannes uh, revolution. And we were hanging, I was hanging on the curtains, trying to, trying to, uh, so, so that they wouldn't show our film. Okay, this story is that uh, in suddenly, May 68, okay? So we're going down to, we're driving down to, from Madrid, we're driving up to Paris and then down to Cannes. And in Paris already, Carlos was saying, my goodness, all these people, they're, march they're, they're marching and they're, this seems something really, and I said, oh, you, know, you stupid Spanish, every time you see three people together, you think it's a movement, a political movement or something. Anyway, it was May 68. Uh -huh. And then we drove down to Cannes, and we decided that we would not show our film in solidarity with the students and the workers. Cannes thought that they could project our film because it was Spanish, and no one would dare say anything because old Franco was back home. And so they tried to project it. And we were trying to get to the microphones. Everyone, there was Polanski there, Godard, everyone was trying to close the curtains. And I was trying to close the curtains. I was up on stage and trying to get Elias Kerejeta, the producer, to the microphone to say that we were taking our film out. And I, w I was hanging on the curtains. And they were projecting the film on top of the curtains. And Godard came and punched me in the mouth because he thought I was the enemy. <laughs> and then, then afterwards, yeah, he obviously wasn't. But it, it was a big thing, and Richard Lester was on the beach, and Carlos was phoning him saying, you've got to take your film out, you've got to take. So then there were all these ridiculous groups saying, we have to show our film because it's called Revolution. Um, I think that was Israeli. And they finally closed the festival. Yes, we closed the festival, which was amazing because everyone was trying to buy petrol like mad, gas, to get their cars to San Remo. And it was the highest price gas has ever been, I mean, in Cannes. And the producers were just stuck there smoking their cigars and buying and selling films because they couldn't get out. <laughs> May 68 was an incredible time. And our theory was always fighting from the inside and not from the outside. But I remember Carlos kept saying, you know, nothing's going to happen. Don't make a martyr of me. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm just going to go back to Spain. And nothing's going to I'm not going to be thrown in jail and everything. I mean, the, the film had passed the censorship and everything, and it was perfectly all right. Saura was a man who always flirted outrageously with bits of maybe a couple of bare tits that he knew that they'd take out. My father hated Franco and would not visit Spain because of Franco. He said, you know, Frank, if Franco's still alive, I'm going to be, well, it means I accept him. Geraldine Chaplin stayed with Saura for over a decade, during which time Franco died and they had a son. Geraldine starred in Cria Cuervos, the first film Saura made after Franco's death. Maria was the story of Carlos's mother, who was a pianist and gave up playing the piano for her husband. <clears throat> yeah. Cria Cuervos shared the Grand Prix Special du Jury at Cannes with Eric Romer's Marquise Do. In the mid-70s, Geraldine Chaplin met Robert Altman. 
met him at a party. He said, well, I'd like you for a job. Just follow me around, observe me, and imitate me, and make it funny. And, uh, or don't try to make it funny, it'll be funny. And it ended up being something quite different. I'm this phony lady who was pretending to be from the BBC. The result of that party game became Chaplin's role in Altman's iconic film, Nashville. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me. When it's love, you won't be needing, you're not free. I mentioned Altman's method of rigging the actors up with their own individual mics. Oh yes, he invented the, the little the microphones, the 16 different uh, beasts. He invented that, I think. And so if he was more interested in what the extras were saying, then he'd just put the sound up there. They were all on different tracks, yeah. Altman also encouraged improvisation. First thing we had together, he said, he invited all the actors and said, you know, you have your scripts, yes, we'll throw them away. Here's a writer, Joan Tewksbury, you know, if you want, if you want help writing the scenes, you all write your own scenes, you all write your own songs, but they're mine. I have the copyright. And uh, <laughs> clever man. I thought I'd be fired immediately. God, I'd never improvise. The first thing I remember improvising with Lily Tomlin, and she was incredible, and she... I can't remember the scene, but we were in a car, and, and uh, she was talking about her deaf children. She had two deaf children. And my character was saying, oh, oh, but how awful. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, the poor dog. And she was saying, no, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That, and this, this, everything was so serious and so dramatic that it became very funny. I'm kidding. I know, well, I know friends. Uh, uh, what is your name? I, the, Norman. Yeah, Norman. Please, Norman. I... I make a point never to gossip with servants. I asked her how it felt coming from Carlos's dark universe to Altman's brand of comedy. Carlos and Altman are a bit like twins because I find Carlos's films incredibly funny. I mean, you say they're dark, of course they're dark, but they're, they're Bunuel dark. I mean, I die of laughter. And of course, Altman is more the American sense. He, a man who loves his country so much, because he really did. And you can tell that through his films. At night, they would show the rushes and everyone oh, yes. would go, and it was like this friendly competition. Oh, yes. He would, he would look to see who wasn't at rushes, not like other directors who say, no, no, you can't see rushes. No, no, he wanted everyone to come to rushes, and we'd have marijuana, and we'd have drinks and popcorn, and it was like a big party, and everyone would celebrate. And everyone would celebrate each other, which was so nice because the generosity that that injected into all of the actors who were usually sort of a bit cagey and jealous of each other. I mean, we would just celebrate if someone was good. And there was always someone who stole the show that night. And that was lovely. And he, that's thanks to him. He was, Karen Black said, you sure throw a good film, Bob. Since gone, my heart is broken another time. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by The Cinema Guild, presenting Hong Sang-soo's The Day After, a mordantly comic tale of infidelity and mistaken identity. With its ingeniously destabilizing leaps through time and stark black-and-white cinematography, 
The day after begins as a darkly hilarious look at a man embroiled in extramarital entanglements, but soon shifts into a heartfelt portrayal of a young woman on a quest for spiritual fulfillment. The day after opens May 11th, exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. He made sure that we were all living in the same barracks and that he was living in the palace. So we'd all have to go over to his place and his parties and his, but everyone was in the film for the whole time. And we all had to go to Russia's. Oh, we didn't have to, but he would notice if we didn't. I asked her, apropos of Altman living in the palace, if it reminded her of David Lean, who left the set of Dr. Zhivago after the last shot retiring to his grand home on the hill. He would only come on the set. He would only have a relationship on the set. And he said afterwards, because we came, we became friends, because he lived in Madrid, that he didn't want anything to interfere with the character in the script, in Robert Bolt's script. He said, this is, this is who you are. I don't want, you actors have very strong personalities. I don't want to be influenced by them. That's the, the opposite mm-hmm. side of the coin. Someday my hair is going to be as long as Custer's. Nate Salisbury doesn't long win, but he does. Geraldine Chaplin also had roles in Altman's A Wedding and Buffalo Bill and the Indians. An accident on the set of Buffalo Bill turned Geraldine's role into a particularly challenging assignment. It also showcased Altman's incredible on-the-spot inventiveness. To show you Robert Altman's generosity, I, I was playing Annie Oakley, so I had to learn to trick ride and to shoot and to do all that. So I was up there, and for three months, I did a lot of trick riding and shooting. I could stand up on a horse with a Winchester and, and shoot, standing, bareback. And one day, I just went out for a, a ride, and those great big American saddles yeah. broke. And so I fell off, and the saddle fell on top of me, and I broke my shoulder. I went to hospital, fixed my, my arm. Then they said, oh, you, you have typhoid, because the only medicine that I was taking was, it was only for typhoid. I was just wondering who was going to replace me, because we hadn't started shooting yet. And I get a little note from Robert Altman saying, start, we've wrote, written into the script that Annie Oakley has a broken arm, and she's terribly frustrated, so start learning to shoot with your left hand. Now that's generosity. And it's very clever, too, because it made the part so much more interesting. At the end of the day, it was very funny. This wow. girl was just bandaged up and so furious that she couldn't shoot, and so it became really funny. No trick riding or any of that. I don't remember most of the film, because I think I had a lot of morphine. I mean, I couldn't, I was in such pain the whole time. Geraldine Chaplin has worked with hundreds of iconic actors, directors, and creatives. I tossed a few names at her, and in her inimitably truthful manner, she tossed back what came to mind. Of course, there was Paul Newman, who played the eponymous lead in Buffalo Bill. He loved playing tricks, practical jokes, like he'd put sarin wrap on top of Bob's toilet, so he'd pee in the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> things like that. And, uh, oh, just, a prankster. Would, yeah, a prankster. When Alan Rudolph, who was Robert Altman's assistant director, went on to direct his own films, he offered Geraldine Chaplin a part in Welcome to L.A. He was assistant director on Buffalo Bill, and then he had written Welcome to L.A., 
And it was for Ronnie Blakely. But then Ronnie Blakely and, and Robert Altman fell out because I think she used some of the songs from the film for... I don't know what happened, but they, he suddenly couldn't stand her anymore. And so Alan said, well, what about Geraldine Chaplin? And that's how I got that part. I mean, it wasn't meant for me. I asked her if she saw an Altman influence on Alan Rudolph. What they had in common is they spent so much film. That was, I mean, with digital today, it's no problem because there is none of that stuff. But, but Robert Altman would do takes, I don't know, a thousand times, and so would Alan Rudolph. They'd just waste the whole money on shooting, which was the fun. And they were both very good audiences. But I think their films are really different. In Rudolph's Remember My Name, Tony Perkins played Geraldine's husband. He was a sweetheart. He was such a sweetheart, and he was always very, very nervous, and so was I, so we had that in common. I said, oh, God, and today, oh, God, do you know you're like, oh, God. Are you still very nervous yes. you, on your first day of shooting? Oh, yeah, for a second, third, and then suddenly it comes back. Oh, yes, always. <laughs> and I remember reading an article in Time magazine about Dear Jeanne Moreau, and they said to her, um, do you still get stage fright? And she said, no, no, now it's pure pleasure. And I think every actress that ever read that was going, oh, no, oh, because when it's pure pleasure, it's such pure pleasure. And then I thought, now she's a lying son of a bitch. That's not true. Of course she's nervous. And then I worked with her, and of course she was nervous. Yes. She worked with Jeanne Moreau in a 1993 British TV film, A Foreign Field, which also starred Lauren Bacall and Alec Guinness. In the 80s, there was a French period where Geraldine Chaplin worked with Alain René and Jacques Rivette and had a part in Claude Lelouch's ambitious project, Les Uns et les Autres. I felt I was doing such a, I was prostituting myself so terribly when I did it. Because Lelouch at that time wasn't considered a great filmmaker at all. And we all sort of thought, oh, Lelouch, you know, that's just crappy. Uh. In Alain René's La Vie est un Roman, which was translated as Life is a Bowl of Cherries, she worked with the dashing Italian actor Vittorio Gassman. I was so in love with him before I worked with him. Oh, he's so handsome and he's so good. And he made a pass at all the blondes in the film, and I kept thinking. And then finally he made a pass at me. And, um, Sooner or later. Yes, it, it came. I was the last one on the list, obviously. And it was sort of half-hearted. <laughs> and, but by then I thought, well, I'm not really interested. But uh, what a gorgeous actor. In 1982, Geraldine Chaplin was on the Cannes jury. She loved that job. If it were up to her, she would spend all day watching movies. I remember the film that won. It was exequal between a Turkish film and Missing, and that film was awfully good. And, and the other, the Turkish film was, I forget what it's called, but it was so good, Yol, Yol. The jury included her friend, Nobel Prize-winning author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and an Italian producer-director, Giorgio Streller. Oh, yes. <laughs> El, Piccolo, El Piccolo Teatro de Milano. Superstar, Streller, terrible story, so embarrassing, who had written to me ages ago when I was first starting and said, we have this wonderful idea for the Piccolo Teatro de Milano, 
and who, who, he was director, and we thought you would be wonderful in Mother Courage. And I had, it was the first day I had my girlfriend, I said, okay, now you're gonna be my secretary. And so she was my secretary, and this was the first letter we answered. And I said, tell him, dear Giorgio, I, I really can't do this part because I don't speak any Italian. Of course, it's the mute part. Which <laughs> he was so... <laughs> Mother Courage, I mean, obviously never read <laughs> Mother Courage. What part would he be offering me? <laughs> the mute. In 1993, Geraldine Chaplin worked with Martin Scorsese on The Age of Innocence. Oh, lovely, gorgeous man, but we all felt very, very bad because he got a whole bunch of English, very good actors, I think including myself, but, and uh, we were all extras in the film, and we were treated as extras. Everyone was having breakdowns. Becoming so jealous, you'd see Marty go up and talk to Michelle Fiverr and Daniel Day-Lewis, and, and we'd go, oh, I wish it was me, I wish it was me. But we were very good extras, but we didn't see that at the time, and I love the film. I love it. Geraldine had a small role in Franco Zeffirelli's version of Jane Eyre. That was a quickie. He said, would you like to play the nice lady or the evil lady? And I said, well, it's up to you, maestro. And he said, well, then let's do the evil lady. So I said, yeah, that would have been my choice, too. Dicen que por las noches no más se le iba en puro llorar. Geraldine Chaplin was thrilled to work with Pedro Almodovar in his Oscar-winning film Talk to Her, in which she plays a ballet master. He's extraordinary to watch because he's... he's his brain and his heart, got, he, he's so ahead of, he's just at a hundred miles an hour the whole time. The brain goes, and at the same time, the heart goes too. Same, they keep up, which is very weird because mostly directors, they're either very intellectual or also pure heart. And he has both going at a million miles an hour. Geraldine Chaplin worked with so many directors. I wondered if there was one in particular with whom she would like to collaborate. It got to a point where it was embarrassing, but I've always said Atomy Goyen, because I followed his career from the beginning, from the first videos, and I think he's so good. And I always thought, when they say, you know, what, who would you like to work with, I always say Atomy Goyen. And there came a point where we would meet at festivals, and then there came a point where he would avoid me at festivals, you know, because I, it's just so embarrassing to have this lady who's always saying, oh, I would love to work with Atomy Coyne. And like, finally... It's like working with Sean Young or something. Yes. <laughs> the Catwoman suit on and you're going over the studio yes, wall. Yes, that's what I was doing the whole time. And, uh, it, and he does avoid me. I think, he's, I think he still has to do his great film, or he probably never will now because he's in the Canadian board of directors of something, something, something. But I thought that was such a... Exotico, that film I loved so much. I thought yeah. he was so... I thought he, he just, he's the kind of director I would have loved to have worked with. 
1993, Geraldine Chaplin got her third Golden Globe nomination for Richard Attenborough's film, Chaplin. Robert Downey Jr. dazzles as Charlie Chaplin, and Geraldine plays Hannah Chaplin, her grandmother. Such a juicy role. I was thinking of, when I heard that he was doing the story of my father, I thought, oh gosh. Well, there'll be no part for me. Um, I'm much too old. All my father's women were all teenagers, and I mean, he'd been in jail now. But they were all very, very young women. He, he married them, yeah, he, which he did. Too. But they were all very young. And then and, uh, Richard Dickey phoned and said, um, would you like to play? And I said, yes, before he'd even said, what? And then I'd never thought of his mother. And that was very strange. I'd never met her, obviously. And I think she died in 1926 or something. I didn't have to do any research or anything because it was all done. David Robinson on working on it, and he's the best expert on my father. And I never knew my father when he was young. And I loved uh, Robert Downey Jr. He was—I thought he was extraordinary. I mean, he is extraordinary, best actor of his generation by far. And he was so good. It was lovely. There was one point, only in one scene, where I—they're taking the children away, and the, the police knock at the door, and they say. Mrs. Chaplin. And I said, oh, cut. No, um, that's wrong name. And he said, no, no. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> but otherwise, it was, just, it was just an incredibly good part, which I never, ever would have gotten if I hadn't been Charlie Chaplin's daughter, because Hannah, my grandmother, was blonde, rather plump, with short hair and very blue eyes. I asked Geraldine if her father told his children that their grandmother suffered from mental illness. Yeah. Oh, yes. But he always made it sound very funny. He would say, well, your grandmother, she, was, she went to an ostrich farm once, and she would take, she took, they gave her this ostrich egg, and then someone had to go to the, answer the telephone, and she took the ostrich egg and threw it back into the corral and said, oh, come back to your mother, you poor thing. And she would go to manholes and buy ice cream and dump it on the heads of the people coming out of the manholes. And she was on the boat trip from England to California. She met this man and became very friendly with him. At the end, there was Charlie Chaplin with all the crowds. And the man said to her, so you're Charlie Chaplin's mother? And she said, yes, and you're Jesus Christ. And uh, she, was, she was crazy. She was a lunatic, yeah, schizophrenic. But he did talk about that. That's oh, yes, yeah. but always as someone very funny, uh -huh. which, was, which was lovely. And then in the book, of course, there's that very, in his autobiography, it's so melancholy, this poor woman. And when I saw the film, I thought, oh, that poor woman. I didn't realize it when I was doing it. Hmm. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. In 1972, 20 years after the Chaplin family was exiled from the United States, Charlie Chaplin returned to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. En route to Los Angeles, the Chaplin spent four days in New York where Charlie Chaplin received an award from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
That award has been renamed the Chaplin Award and is now one of the industry's most prestigious commendations. I asked Geraldine Chaplin if she went back for the ceremonies. No, no. One of my sisters and myself were very, very much against my father going back to the United States. We felt that it was going to be an incredible betrayal. And Daddy did it for the boys, Mo Rothman and Bert Schneider, because they'd bought the films. My father felt he had to do something for his distributors. Yes, so he went for that reason. But my sister and I, we we tried everything. Which sister? Josie. Uh And we tried everything because we thought it would be such a betrayal to go back. Indeed, why do it at 83? You know, why? And then we realized how wrong we were. It gave him a new lease on life. It really did. What was was he betraying? All his ideas of his whole life as a humanist, as I mean, America was, is, was, is, was, is a terrible place. Terrible place. Someone like my father, this profound humanist. No, don't go back. Don't, what do you, God, don't go back for an Oscar. Oh, come on. We even invented some, maybe, kind of flirtation of my mother with someone who, we tried everything anyway, and so we didn't go. We decided not to go. We thought it very bad, and then we came back and saw him, and how, oh, he was so happy. Oh, it gave him a lease on life, it really did. Humor heightens our sense of survival and preserves our sanity. These are the words of Charlie Chaplin. So are these written over 30 years ago. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without those qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. Humor and humanity, the abiding elements of Chaplin's artistic conscience and his unparalleled talent as as actor, writer, director, producer, composer, and to quote W.C. Fields, the greatest ballet dancer that ever lived. Oh, yeah, and of course the great thing was that they gave him, everyone applied for American visas. They gave my mother multiple entry, whatever, whatever. And my father, they gave him a visa for five days or nine days or something like that. And he was so thrilled. He said, they're still scared of me. (laughs) That's almost better, right? Yes, yes. They're still scared of me. The inscription reads to Charles Chaplin for the incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures the art form of this century. Chaplin has become more than a name. It is a word in the vocabulary of films. And anyone who has ever seen a movie is in his debt. But Lincoln Center, I think, was the main thing for him. Was the most, the Oscar ceremony was something else. And he was a bit, a bit tired by then. And, and uh, of course, he said the best thing that anyone could ever say. And my mother joked about it afterwards. But he said with his teary eyes, saying, to all those awful turds, saying, you beautiful, lovely people, you wonderful people, oh, you lovely people, you sweet people, I forget what the word was, but it was, you sweet people, to all the horrors. (laughs) And words seem so futile, so feeble. I can only say that thank you for the honor of, of inviting me here.
And, oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you. So what is Geraldine Chaplin doing these days? She lives mostly in Miami where, she jokes, she stays mostly horizontal, going 20 feet from reading on her deck to bathing in the ocean. She seems to be always working, though, keeping very busy dabbling in different genre projects, science fiction, horror, even blockbuster thrillers. Recently, she did a series of publicity films directed by Carl Lagerfeld. She played Coco Chanel. Right, well, uh, I will think about it. Goodbye, dear. Apparently to one of my nieces, he said, um, oh, the only person that can play Chanel is your aunt Geraldine Chanel at 70. And I thought it was all a lie. I never met him. Oh, you never met him? No, until the first day on the set. A great hotel, 200 roses and everything. But I said, well, it, is there a script? No script. No, no, there's, there's no script. We'll just... And then he'd give you 11 pages and expect you to learn them immediately. I would like to place a call to New York, please. Plaza 740. It, it was difficult because he said, OK, Coco Chanel is... shot in her apartment, is... Uh, she suddenly wakes up, and she comes to life again, and you see that it's not her because you can't see her in the mirror, that she's a ghost, and she's so I'm a ghost, and then she tries to smoke and finds it disgusting, and how could I possibly have that habit? And then she goes upstairs to the workroom, and there's Carl Lagerfeld, and she says, oh, so you've taken over my job. And then it was all improvisation. He said, look, just insult me. Insult, say the worst things you can think about me, and just insult me, and, and don't, wor- don't, don't worry, because I'll, I'll get it back at you. And I thought, well, I, you, as Geraldine, I can do it. But as Coco Chan, I don't know enough about her to be able to insult as she would have insulted. But he said to just, just, you know, let it out. Be, be horrible. So I was horrible. I haven't worked with him since. And, uh, and uh, I, I said... Uh, I said, oh, well, I, women wanted to imitate me all over the world. People wanted to dress like me. I haven't seen any little boys wanting to dress like you, dear. And then the Chanel people came out and they said, can you just not be, I mean, tone it down? Because it's, <laughs> that, was kind of, that was kind of funny. Over the past decade, Geraldine Chaplin did three films with young Spanish director J.A. Bayonis, who broke through big with The Orphanage, a horror film. The film, which was produced by Guillermo del Toro, screened in Cannes in 2007. I mean, that's a sort of logical transition. When, once you've done all the grandmas, then you go on to the horror. Also, my wrinkles get me work, which is true. But the main thing, the horror was, because Bayonas, this little guy who I'd never met in my life, came in, tiny little, I thought he was a teenager, and he came in, he said, I have a script. He rang our doorbell, and he said, I have a script. And he came in, and he said, I, I thought I would like you to do the, uh, the medium in the script. And I read it, and it was really good. And you could feel this guy, he breathed cinema. So I did it, but nothing. It, it was a huge success. And then he thinks I bring him luck. 
So I've been in every single film of his afterwards. And sometimes he doesn't even know what part. He said, okay, you play the Scottish grandfather. Oh, no, grandmother. Hence, Geraldine Chaplin will be seen in what almost certainly will be one of the biggest movies of the year, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. The rain had stopped and we made our way down to the lobby. I asked Geraldine what ways she thought being one of Charlie Chaplin's children has instilled in her a confidence and belief in herself that she has carried with her through her life. I don't know. I think I've, I've always been so proud of being his, his daughter. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be, I don't know, Henry Fonda's daughter. Of course, she's, she's done it. But Bush's daughter, I mean, uh, difficult. Charlie Chaplin's daughter, the main thing is that not only is he the most famous actor in the world, the most famous, but he is the most loved person in the world. He's everyone's hero. And that to be the daughter of everyone's hero. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness. Although a tear may be ever so near. You've been listening to a Words and Deeds production of Geraldine Chaplin, A Life. Written and narrated by Andrea R. Vaucher, produced, engineered, and directed by David Bloom. Always remember to smile. In the New York Times, Manola Dargis says the day after is a lovely, intricately fractured story. South Korean master Hong Sang-soo's 21st feature, The Day After, opens May 11th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.